From New York's Hudson River Valley, I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Read 650 celebrates writers and the spoken word, five minutes and 650 words at a time. On today's show, we explore a series of firsts from writers Carrie Patterson, David Masello, and me. Johnny's Match.com profile showed him in red pajamas, seated on a front porch step with two Scotty dogs, a picture someone's mom would take on Christmas. When I hugged Lauren in the lobby of her hotel on the Upper West Side, first time I'd done so since college, her silky, blossom-fragrant hair reminded me instantly of she as a girl and I as a boy. My heart pounded in my temples as I pulled myself onto the roof, scraping my elbows and belly on the rough, hot asphalt. I stood up, then immediately sat down and hugged my knees. The water seemed awfully far away. And on today's Between the Lines segment, writer Raina Genton discusses the process and the power of creation. I started my writing adventures in a memoir class seven years ago. My first lesson, when you write a personal narrative, you become a slave to your recollections. That's all just ahead on Read 650. You never forget your first puppy, your first car, or your first love. Some firsts are mundane, like your first olive, while others are unforgettable, maybe your first high dive. A first can be a solemn rite of passage or a dream come true, and some firsts supply practical knowledge that we carry forward, like, for example, why it's a good idea to avoid games involving dice and money, or why tequila shots are actually a very bad idea. We begin today's show with a story about a very first Match.com date from writer Carrie Patterson. And here's Carrie, recorded live at Nancy Manicharian's The Cell Theater in New York City, reading A Fling and a Prayer. Johnny's Match.com profile showed him in red pajamas, seated on a front porch step with two Scotty dogs, a picture someone's mom would take on Christmas. His face seemed to say, happy holidays, I'll be your first date. The week before, my church friend and I had met for lunch. With four children, a husband, and two beautiful homes, she surprised me by saying, I kind of envy you, you know. I laughed, why? She smiled, you're going to have first kisses again. That's optimistic, I thought. As I got into my car, the divorce papers still fresh on the passenger seat. The night of the date, I walked briskly through Bryant Park in my red wool coat and umbrella, bracing against the rain. In my pocket, I felt the scrap of paper I'd scribbled a prayer on in the train. Just let us both have fun. I straightened my dress and adjusted my leather boots. My stomach tightened as I sidestepped puddles toward the restaurant. I could hear my body fit teacher's voice saying, shoulders back, abs in, chin up, smile. True to his pictures, plus a few pounds, Johnny was brown haired, round of face, and right around my age. He had a Brooklyn accent, a Polish last name, and a stature just taller than mine. 
wearing a brown houndstooth jacket and a toothy, mischievous grin. He took my coat and ushered me to our corner booth. Smacking his strawberry gum, he said, you made it. <laughs> he ordered wine and I nervously took out my hairband. He reached over and smoothed his finger across my forehead. No, keep it up, he said. I like it. <laughs> over salad, he told me about his days of skipping school, selling drugs, and getting arrested. He scooted closer, stroking his hand on my thigh. I'm not used to going out with good girls, he said. <laughs> I tilted my head. What makes you think I'm good? I'd said nothing about what I do for a living. He paused. You don't swear, you're polite, and you're dressed. His eyes moved down my chest, past my waist, and back up. Conservative. I looked down at my form-fitted black shift. The fabric was even shiny. It was like in sixth grade when I showed up at Scott's Bar Mitzvah wearing my best Sunday school dress, a white frock with three pastel bows, while the other girls slid by in sequined, strapless gowns. Sexy was always a few steps ahead of me. Our sautéed scallops arrived rimmed with caramel brown glaze, and I cut mine slowly. This is fun, I said to myself. <laughs> We're having fun. <laughs> After months of court dates, tax forms, and moving boxes, fun was an alien concept, an island vacation you earned a trip to. Johnny ordered us more wine and leaned closer, his face inches from mine. His eyes in the dim light were unusually round and open, so much white around the iris, like the eyes of the possum or raccoon that beamed at me when I took out the garbage at night. I couldn't decide if I found them playful or frightening. He squeezed my hand and whispered, let's kiss now and get the tension over with. Before I could formulate an answer, his mouth pressed to mine and our heads weaved together with overlapping lips, negotiating noses and fluttering eyelids. The sheer proximity of a man's face and voice and skin startled me. The only other man I'd ever kissed was my ex-husband, our first time on a concrete ledge outside a graduate student swing dance. I had closed my eyes and waited for something to happen. I didn't know you had to move your mouth. <laughs> I didn't know you didn't have to marry the first man you kissed. I tried not to think about this as Johnny moved his mouth from my lips to my cheek to the top of my ear. We walked to Grand Central to catch my train and he swiftly pulled me to the wall around the corner from the 42nd Street entrance. It felt like someone had flipped the switch of every one of my cells to on. Why leave now, Johnny murmured, his breath warm near my neck. I felt the crumpled up prayer in my pocket. Tomorrow's Sunday, I said. So, Sunday, he shrugged, sleep in, football. I thought about the ankle length black wool robe I'd be wearing early the next morning, the table of bread and wine I'd stand behind. I tried to picture Johnny there. I should probably tell you, I said. 
I'm a minister. <laughs> A native of Kansas, Carrie Patterson currently serves as pastor of the Woodstock Reformed Church in Woodstock, New York. She also works at the nearby Euphoria Yoga Studio and the Golden Notebook Bookstore. Carrie is a former public school English teacher who earned her Master's of Divinity at Princeton Seminary and served as associate pastor for 12 years at the Reformed Church of Bronxville before leaving to through-hike the Appalachian Trail before settling in the Hudson Valley. As the cliche goes, there's a first time for everything. And as writer David Masello recalls, there's staying power in the memory of some of those experiences that can shake our sense of who we are. Here's David, recorded at our first time event in New York City, reading A Symptom of the Past. When I hugged Lauren in the lobby of her hotel on the Upper West Side, the first time I'd done so since college, her silky, blossom-fragrant hair reminded me instantly of she as a girl and I as a boy. An ancestral twinge of the desire I'd once acted upon arose as we re-embraced, to where I wondered, am I more flexible than I've thought all these years? Could what happened then occur again? As we slid deep into a scallop-shaped booth, she sipping a scotch, I a Manhattan, I detected the first time in these 35 years since symptoms of the jealousy and wounding from when I first knew her. Lauren had been the girlfriend of my then best college friend. Mark knew I loved him, but because he was so tolerant, he accepted it. I wrote him poems, left gifts on his bedspread, even played in his basketball league, double dribbling every game the shrieks of a ref's whistle acknowledging my errors. Lauren would sleep over at the house in the Ann Arbor student ghetto. I was so naive about sex that I mistook the retainer she'd leave on the sink every night for a diaphragm. <laughs> Sometimes I'd try to stay away the entire night, bicycling into distant neighborhoods, sleeping on the porch chaise because I couldn't bear knowing that down the hallway from my room, she and Mark were together. Lauren knew of my feelings for Mark, and she'd knock on my door and sit cross-legged with me on the floor to reassure me that Mark loved me too, just in a different way, as did she. But she said something in the hotel that startled me, a conclusion I'd thought my own. I think you fell from me because I was as close to Mark as you could get. We let that proclamation settle until our ice cubes snapped. I was a fallen woman for doing that. Here I am describing myself now as a serial monogamist with men and women. But then I was straying and betraying Mark. For the first time, I realized I had betrayed Mark as my friend, and I felt a concussive shame. I reminded Lauren of our first time in the neo-Gothic law library, sacred in its splendor. We discovered a windowless study room within, and there we went. For so long that the library closed and we were locked inside, setting off alarms as we raced through a fire exit. I've no recollection of that, she said. 
Yet for me, it was not only my first moment with a girl, but also the most significant of our being together. I do remember our going to the Arboretum one morning, making dew angels, she said. We had a connection. As we reminisced in the booth, votives a flicker about the dark lounge like the planetarium star shows we'd attended at school, we touched shoulders, knees, inhaled our scents, ancient in their familiarity. I wasn't sure I'd known it before, but I think that once we love someone romantically, we love them always. That it's akin to getting some virus that stays in the body, dormant, seemingly inert, but which, under the right circumstances, reactivates the original symptoms, though a weaker strain. When you see someone again after decades, someone who really is interested in knowing everything you've done, whatever you say about how you've occupied your life just doesn't seem like anything or enough. A succession of office layouts, apartments with skyline views, others of pigeon flapping air shafts, in-laws who are no longer that. I remember taking you to that diner on State Street and holding you so tightly an old woman crossed the street to say, you really love this girl. And I did. Seems they're closing, blowing out candles or stars. Can we keep talking, my room upstairs? But I'd recovered. Symptoms abated. It was 1 a.m. Time to leave the hotel. <laughs> David Masello began his career as a nonfiction book editor at Simon & Schuster, and then went on to hold senior edit positions at many magazines, including Travel and Leisure, Art and Antiques, and Town and & Country. He's currently executive editor of Milieu, a magazine about design. He's also the author of two books about art and architecture. This is Fran Tuno, and it's my pleasure to introduce our next writer, Edward McCann. Ed is an award-winning writer, producer, and the founder and editor of Read 650, celebrating the spoken word with live events and this regular podcast. Here's Ed, recorded live at the Cell Theater on West 23rd Street in New York City, reading his first-time story, Up on a Roof. I grew up in New York City's borough of Queens, surrounded by water in an island town called Broad Channel a place where children were taught to swim before they could read or even walk. My family lived on high ground, on the busy Cross Bay Boulevard. But the town's quiet side streets with their vacant lots and salty marshes were my real playgrounds, where shallow, weedy backyards gave way to rocks and pilings with retaining walls, to docks with rowboats that bobbed in the wide canals. This was a world of killie traps, crab cages, and clamshells, of mud, and muskrats and mysterious things that were delivered by, uh, daily by shifting currents. My memories float, some submerged yet, in this dark water. Around the corner at the end of 14th Road, a long gray boardwalk contorted by decades of ice storms and hurricanes led to a row of houses standing firm above Jamaica Bay on barnacle-encrusted poles sunk deep into the mud. The tide flowed high and low beneath these homes, and 50 yards away, a wooden World War II-era cargo barge sat wedged into a muddy shoreline. That barge was our beach club, our summer paradise. 
It was a place where half-naked kids gathered to sun and to swim, a Thomas Aikens painting translated to a weedy, marshy side street in Queens. When teenagers were there, usually at high tide, which was the very best time for swimming, we younger kids stayed away. One hot summer high tide day, while a group of teenagers smoked and laughed and sunned themselves on the barge, some of the younger boys climbed to the roof of a vacant two-story house at the end of the adjacent boardwalk. One by one, a line of those boys jumped off the roof into the water below. Competing for best cannonball, each boy hugged his knees to his chest midair, entering the water butt first with a big splash. Each in turn then swam to the barge, then ran back out to the end of that splintered boardwalk and climbed again to the top of the roof. I watched for a while from shore before joining the line of wet, breathless boys climbing up the side of that house, getting hand and footholds where I could find them. I began my ascent by climbing on top of a wooden box, then shinnying quickly across an oil tank, the metal hot on my bare skin. I reached for a piece of trellis, a windowsill, a rain gutter, then finally the drip edge of the shingles. My heart pounded in my temples as I pulled myself onto the roof, scraping my elbows and belly on the rough, hot asphalt. I stood up, then immediately sat down and hugged my knees. The water seemed awfully far away. It was too dangerous to climb back down, and I sat on those hot shingles while the other boys passed me again and again. They hopped and hollered and leapt repeatedly off the roof, flying out over the boardwalk and splashing into the bay. My mouth dry with fear, I surveyed the horizon while trying to figure a way out of my predicament. And I sat there for so long, pretending to enjoy the view, that I attracted the attention of the teenagers on the barge. One girl shouted words of encouragement, but the older boys jeered and threatened to call the volunteer fire department, the volleys, to come and rescue me. The heat rising from the tar and the shingles cooked my thighs and the soles of my feet, but as the minutes dragged, the humiliation made my ears feel even hotter. Accepting finally that I really had no choice, I stood and walked slowly to the drip edge of the shingles as if aligning my toes with the edge of a diving board. Though my stomach lurched and my legs trembled, I leapt off the roof into the abyss. A salty splash, cool silence, then cheers and applause from all the kids on the barge and the roof. And I jumped five more times that afternoon. <laughs> Ed McCann is a regular feature writer for Milieu Magazine. His features and essays have been published in many literary journals, anthologies, and national magazines. He lives and writes in New York's Hudson River Valley. Well, thank you, Fran. Hearing you introduce me feels something like seeing my name in lights. And I should mention here that our wonderful announcer, Fran Tuno, is available for freelance voice work. She is a real professional who will exceed your expectations. And you can learn more about her at frantuno.com. That's frantunno.com. Read 650's executive producer is Richard Kolath. I'm your host and Read 650's founder and executive editor. Our editorial team is Stephen Lewis, David Masello, and Lisa Donati Mayer. Sarah Caldwell is our chief technology officer and troubleshooter. And our show was produced by Jim Russick. We'll be back right after the break with Raina Genton and Between the Lines. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. 
Support for READ 650 comes from Nancy Manicharian's The Cell in New York City. Dedicated to the incubation and presentation of new works by emerging artists, The Cell has produced over a dozen critically acclaimed world premieres of new plays and musicals and serves as a home base for a large community of resident artists and organizations, such as Blackboard Reading Series, Artists Without Walls, and Tribeca New Music. View details and performance schedules at thecelltheater.org. Writer Raina Genton toggles between writing memoir and fiction. And when writing fiction, she marvels at the power she has in building characters and environments and storylines, a power that also comes with a sense of responsibility. For today's edition of Between the Lines, here's Raina Genton reading Creating Worlds at My Kitchen Table. I started my writing adventures in a memoir class seven years ago. My first lesson... When you write a personal narrative, you become a slave to your recollections. The story you're telling isn't true in any empirical sense. It's true only in that it's how you remember your role in a specific moment in time. Fiction is a whole other story. Fiction doesn't care what you remember. You decide what makes the characters noble and appealing, what makes the story whole and satisfying without the tether of memory. You're the creator, with a capital C. In the small world of the story, you're omniscient and omnipotent. No longer wed to the facts, you decide what people say, how they act, the consequences of their behavior. Ultimately, you have the power over life and death. While it isn't real, it isn't not real either. It's something in between. For me, the creation starts with small things. I name my characters, and I find, surprising myself, that one has the name of a doctor who once healed me. Another is a teacher who encouraged me. Another carries the moniker of the first boy I kissed at summer camp when I was 15. The protagonist has my daughter's blonde curls and the parents occasionally use expressions I heard when I was a child. The kitchen table in my first novel is unabashedly the kitchen table of my youth, with all the emotions of my teenage years and hours spent with family and friends etched into its wood veneer surface. Along the way, as I begin to exercise my infinite power as creator, the temptation is almost unbearable to make everything turn out better for every person I've loved who makes a cameo, however disguised, in my story. And when a character is inspired by a real person, the impulse to rewrite the ultimate ending is intense. So what lessons have I learned from writing memoir and fiction? That each dares the writer to confront her own truth, factual or imagined, Memoir demands recollection and an honest reckoning, no matter how subjective. Fiction demands a wise use of the creative power that both serves the invented world and pays homage to the real world. Each form of expression has its unique purpose and methodology, and the writer's task is to honor the possibilities of truth and beauty that are inherent in both. 
Raina Genton is a former criminal appellate attorney with a public defender's office, and what began as a lark when a friend invited her to attend a writing class at Sarah Lawrence College has turned into her passion. Raina's debut novel, the romantic legal thriller entitled Unreasonable Doubts, was published by She Writes Press in 2018. In 2021, Touchpoint Press published her middle grade novel, My Name is Layla, featuring a dyslexic protagonist and a story about resilience and empathy. With Both Are True, published by Moonshine Cove in 2021, Raina has returned to contemporary fiction, the law, and New York City. She lives with her husband and two children in Westchester County. Between the Lines is a regular feature of our show, and it is the place we invite writers of every genre to share their thoughts about writing and the writing life. For details, check out the submissions tab on our website, read650.org, and while you're there, look at the submission calls for upcoming shows to see what might inspire you. If you like this episode and you like our show, please leave a positive review for us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Your thumbs up really does help listeners find the show. Please also share this episode with your friends, and please follow the podcast to receive each new episode in your queue. They'll be waiting there for you whenever you want to listen. That does it for me today, and thanks again to writers Carrie Pattison, David Masello, and Raina Genton. For more Read 650, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn, and just know how much we appreciate you listening today, and we appreciate your help spreading the word about the spoken word. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650.